Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, two Georgia teens were reportedly suspended for posting a photo of their recently reopened high school. Students pressed together in a hallway, few wearing masks. And apparently the principal gave kids a threatening talking to about saying anything negative about the school, like that maybe it was endangering their lives and those of their families. Expect more of these kinds of conflict and silencing attempts as places make choices about what to reopen when. Our guest says more thoughtful attention to the how of reopening is necessary. But for that, you'd need to listen to people who actually know and care, rather than constantly handing the mic to Mr. It-is-what-it-is. We'll get an update on coronavirus coverage from freelance journalist and author Neil DeMoss. Also on the show... There are people who think that once you're in prison, you can be forgotten. You've been deemed a bad person, and whatever happens to you, you somehow deserve. For those people, the unsurprising sweep of COVID-19 through the incarcerated population is at most a footnote to the bigger story. But growing numbers of Americans are questioning the whole criminal justice system. Who goes to prison and why? And what are the supposed reasons it's better for society to have them there than back in community? For those people, the pandemic is a chance to shine a light on decarceration, not just in a time of disease, but all the time. We'll talk about that with Nicole Porter, Director of Advocacy at The Sentencing Project. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. Trump has made clear he would like to ban the video-making app TikTok. Despite being mostly used by young folks to make music or comedic videos, the White House says it's worried about the platform, as the New York Times explained, because of the app's Chinese ownership. As Ari Paul outlined for FAIR.org, Trump then changed course, as he does, declaring he would be satisfied if the company were acquired by Microsoft and adding that he expected the U.S. Treasury to get a cut of the profits since it was his threat that made the sale possible. On the one hand, Trump has found what might appear to be a random issue to deflect from his various problems, a phenomenon that lends itself to ribbing from satirists and talk show hosts. But let's not laugh past the deeper problem. Trump is leveraging his executive position to fight and try to take control of a media group with the excuse of its being foreign. That's both a threat to free speech and the free press and adds to his administration's pugnacious xenophobia. But corporate media have helped bang the drum against TikTok, too. The Independent reported on claims that the app was loaded with Chinese spyware. Board Panda reported claims that, while not technically malware, TikTok is certainly a nefarious app that was outright evil. And Bloomberg sounded the alarm that the app's data harvesting was a concern of national security. To accuse a free app of engaging in data mining, Paul notes, is a bit like running a headline that water is wet. Facebook, Twitter, and other networks are free to use, but their owners have grown rich not through user fees, but through the cultivation of data that users make public, which is very valuable for modern-day Internet marketing. So the narrative becomes clear. When U.S.-based corporations use apps to gather data on people, it's just regular business. But, as indicated by Trump's suggestion that Microsoft buying the app would solve the problem, when a Chinese-owned company does it, 
It's economic and political warfare. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Listeners will have heard of Donald Trump's recent interview on the coronavirus, in which, holding a colored bar graph, he told Axios's Jonathan Swan that, quote, if you look at death right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories, lower than the world, close quote. In reality, of course, the U.S. has some 4.8 million confirmed cases of coronavirus and 150,000 deaths and rising. Trump said, quote, it's under control as much as you can control it, close quote. In reality, other countries that have reacted differently have had greater success in containing the virus. The interview provided vivid, if unnecessary, evidence of Trump's angry ignorance and soullessness. But what's lost when the conversation stays framed around him, when media see their job as triangulating between Trump and the truth? There's a lot at stake for journalism, but preeminently for the lives and health of the people of this country. Here to bring us an update on coronavirus coverage is Neil DeMoss. He's a freelance journalist, a frequent contributor to FAIR.org, and author. His most recent book is The Brooklyn Wars. He joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Neil DeMoss. Hey, good to be here, Janine. Well, let's start with your latest piece for FAIR.org. You're talking about Melbourne, Australia, which just declared a state of disaster. But the piece is on another level about the United States and about U.S. reporting. What are you trying to convey there? Yeah, so there was a fair amount of attention in the U.S. and worldwide to the fact that Melbourne, which is the second largest city in Australia, had declared a state of disaster because the virus had come surging back at a level that they hadn't seen since the spring and had reestablished lockdowns. Only one person in a household can leave the house to go shopping. Very strict measures. But as I started looking into it more, I realized that Melbourne, even at the high rate of infection that they're seeing now, is still doing much better than the vast majority of the United States. If Victoria, the state in Australia that Melbourne is in, were a U.S. state, it would be about in the top third in terms of containing the virus. And, you know, this is obviously a problem. And it's always difficult for the U.S. media to really pay much attention to anything that doesn't affect the U.S. But when it does pay attention to another country, and the only lesson it takes is, man, sure is tough to be Australian and not, oh, my goodness, Australia is doing all this with even a moderate level of infection. And meanwhile, states like Florida that have multiple times the infection rate are doing very little and can go out and eat at restaurants in many parts of the state. That's the wrong lesson we should be taking. Well, in terms of comparison or context, we are seeing a focus on different states within the United States. Some of it looks like schadenfreude, you know, states that said, we don't need no stinking quarantine, and then saw cases spike. But you think that there might be a, a distraction or a misdirection in just kind of holding states up against other states too simplistically. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems is it becomes this matter of scoring the standings, right? Florida's in the lead. No, now California's in the lead. 
that's really not what it's about. I mean, go back three, four months, and it was New York and New Jersey that were in the lead. And that's how a pandemic spreads, right? It hits here, it hits there. And it's not so much about who has the most deaths or even who has the most deaths last week. It's about who's doing what to try and prevent the spread and contain the spread and you know, what's most effective. And I feel like that's what we're really missing in a lot of the coverage. You know, there's an occasional article here or there that will say, what's really effective? What can we do to reopen schools safely? You know, is going back into offices something we should be doing? Is opening restaurants something we should be doing? But that sort of gets lost in the noise of who has the highest death rate? You know, what is this governor or that governor saying today? Which is obviously much easier to report but it's much less informative for people who are having to live through this. Well, and I think that we can acknowledge that this is uncharted territory. You know, there are a lot of unknowns here, but I think it's fair to demand media address it as such, you know, with appropriate disclaimers and acknowledging different degrees of certainty and not just, you know, as you're kind of hinting at, not just run it through the story machine as if they already knew how things would turn out, you know, and they can do their standard approach of quoting politicians and comparing states in a kind of horse race way. But it it always, in a way, comes back to who gets to speak and who do journalists listen to to shape their stories. What are your thoughts about the sourcing in COVID stories? Obviously, I will freely acknowledge, you know, as a journalist, this is a hard story to cover, right? The facts are changing constantly. It's something that nobody knew anything about until a few months ago. It's not something that you can use your storehouse of past stories to go back and say, oh, okay, well, this is just another step in the story we've been telling for a long time. However, there is one way to make this a lot easier, which is to go to the experts who do know about this, right? And there are epidemiologists and infectious disease experts who have been studying, if not COVID, how epidemics go and how you know vaccines work and how social distancing works and have been studying this for years and decades. And we're seeing a little bit of that, but way, way, way too little. A perfect example was that story back in early July that spread like wildfire about how vaccines might not be effective because it looks like after you get COVID, your antibodies drop off quickly, right? Um, This all started with a story, I think, in the San Francisco Chronicle that was based mostly on one researcher who was not an infectious disease expert, he's a molecular biologist, and who was involved in trying to promote the idea that we should be studying treatments rather than vaccines because vaccines, you know, may or may not work, which is a legitimate viewpoint, but it obviously means that he's someone who's going to be more inclined to say, well, we have to pay attention to, you know, well, could vaccines fail? Right. And the rest of the epidemiology world, as Fair reported, was not thinking this way. And since then, the last few weeks, it's come out, oh, actually, antibody rates come down, but it still looks like they stay at a high enough level and your immune system is primed to create more to where vaccines, there's no guarantees, but you know, we should be able to expect them to work as well for COVID as for anything else. So again, so many of these stories what's safe to reopen, what we should be doing, do masks work, are something that you could easily get some information by just calling around and saying to the experts, what do we know, what don't we know, and what can we tell the public? And, you know, that's the sort of thing that journalists are 
again, doing occasionally but not nearly enough and need to be explaining in a way that gets at all the nuances and explains, again, what we should be doing, what we don't know if we should be doing, and what we still need to study. It's not the kind of thing that modern journalism really is expert in because it's much easier, again, to just go and find one expert saying, yeah, sure is really bad, and then, you know, that's your headline. But that's not what the American public and that's not what American policymakers need at this point. Well, can I just ask you, finally, it seems like a lot of stories seem to have an unspoken assumption that, well, since we're not going to stop the virus, you know, what's the best way to do X, Y, or Z? You know, there's, there's, there's almost a, a giving up on the idea of true containment, and we seem to be talking about mitigation. I mean, is that really where we should be? Is not the lesson that you have to control the virus in order to restart the economy and go back to schools and all these other things. I'm just not, some of the reporting I find very confusing because it seems to start with the idea that that's just not possible. Yeah. And one of the things that epidemiologists are saying very clearly is if you do want to reopen schools, far more important than paying attention to how much hand sanitizer there is on hand, right, is make sure there isn't a lot of virus out there that people can be catching, right? That's how it's worked in other countries, in Europe, in Asia, where they have started reopening schools, is it's much safer to do it if the virus isn't running wild out in the community. That is a lesson that seems to be really, really hard for everybody to understand, is that when you're talking about containment, when you're talking about trying to get the viral levels down, it's not even just about saving people from getting sick or dying right now. It's about getting us back to a point where we can keep the virus at a very low level so that you can start to do some things and reopen the economy and reopen schools and maybe reopen offices and other indoor things, even though indoors is very dangerous in small ways because you've created the context for that. And that's something, again, that I wish that the U.S. media were looking more to other countries and trying to see what's worked there, what can work here. But we're still not quite up to that point. We've been speaking with journalist Neil DeMoss. You can follow his writing at demoss.net. Thank you so much, Neil DeMoss, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Always a pleasure. It's hard to think of a worse place to be in a pandemic than a prison, crowded, unsanitary, inadequate health care. And indeed, COVID-19 is spreading in U.S. jails, prisons, and immigration detention centers. Research by the Marshall Project reports at least 78,000 confirmed cases and 766 deaths among detainees through July 28th, numbers that are certainly low. At one Ohio prison, virtually every inmate tested positive. With the recognition that a prison sentence should not be allowed to become a death sentence, numerous advocates have been calling for, and some states undertaking, decarceral efforts, including releasing those who are medically vulnerable and reducing low-level arrests. The treatment of incarcerated people in the face of a pandemic only highlights the ongoing problems with the prison system, including its racial bias. It also provides an opening to talk about decarceration more broadly even when there isn't a life-threatening virus afoot, and what needs to happen to allow it to work. 
for individuals and communities. Those questions, asked deeply enough, might change the conversation about why so many people are going to prison in the first place. Joining us now to talk about COVID and decarceration is Nicole Porter. She's Director of Advocacy at the Sentencing Project. She joins us now by phone from Houston. Welcome to Counterspin, Nicole Porter. Thank you for having me. Well, as I said, some states are taking action, decarceral steps in the face of COVID-19. What has that looked like, and is it sufficient, do you think? No, it's not sufficient. Some states have taken action, and some states are doing more than other states, but in reality, no state is doing what they should be doing. So most recently, New Jersey lawmakers adopted legislation that has the potentiality to release up to 3,000 incarcerated prisoners in New Jersey. Those would be people within 10 months of release who have certain sentences. In other states, governors have taken action to release people who were expected to be released anyway during 2020. That includes gubernatorial actions in California, Illinois, and New York. Much of that has moved up release dates for people who are within a few months of their already planned release. And while it is a good step to move those people out of prison sooner so that social distancing could be followed within prisons, it's still not enough. What the United States has done even collectively pales in comparison to what other countries have done, even more autocratic countries like Iran and Turkey, that have also released people who should never have been in prison to begin with, but their releases number tens of thousands of individuals. Wow. I think also of all those people who are in jail before they've even had a trial. There have also been significant reductions in the jail population as well, and and much of the decarceration impact has happened at the jail level by changing practices that could be adopted even when we're not going through a global pandemic. So in order to reduce jail population, practitioners in many counties around the country decided not to admit residents for certain infractions. So they stopped arresting and booking into local county jails, residents on traffic violations and other minor offenses. Those are practices that could be implemented even when we're not going through a public health crisis. And the same, too, at the state level within prisons, much of the reduction in state prison populations is not because of active efforts to decarcerate or move people out, but to reduce admissions into prison. And there's a range of reasons why that's happened over the last couple of months since the pandemic started. One is that courts have stopped or delayed proceedings with the goal of quarantine and social distancing within courts, which can be congregate settings. Another is that state prison systems refuse to admit newly sentenced prisoners from local lockups. Even conservative states like Florida and Oklahoma had those policies in place in the midst of the quarantine period. But that also influenced factors at the local level because Newly sentenced prisoners were still confined, and those changes required local officials from sheriffs to district attorneys to make changes around their local jail populations. So there's a range of different reasons why 
prison and jail populations have decreased during the pandemic, but it's still not enough. It's still nowhere near what needs to be happening. Well, what about at the federal level? Have incarcerated people been considered at all in these big pieces of COVID legislation that we've seen coming down? Not enough. There has been some decrease at the federal level. Some federal prisoners have been moved to home confinement. Federal prisoners who are medically vulnerable, who are elderly, have been released from prisons and allowed to continue their sentence under home confinement. There's been an ongoing effort to call attention to the incarcerated population in the CARES Act and other stimulus packages that have made their way through Congress. But there's been very little attention to that, despite a great deal of advocacy and attempt to call attention to our incarcerated residents. One outcome that's been helpful in the midst of the pandemic is the easing of telephone and email fees that prisoners are generally required to pay in order to stay in contact with their family and loved ones. So during the pandemic, those fees have been waived. So that's good, but it's still not enough because there are people currently incarcerated who are at risk of contracting COVID. And if they do get the coronavirus, you know, they could potentially have a fatal outcome from it. So this country needs to be doing a lot more to reduce the number of people in confinement so that social distancing can be practiced for those left behind and others can be moved to the community where they can better practice social distancing in the free world. Well, on the one hand, letting people out of prison is automatically frightening or sounds wrong to some people. But on the other hand, there's something different in the wind, uh, an increased recognition that the U.S. carceral system isn't just racist, isn't just unfair, but that it doesn't contribute to public safety in the way that people have been told. You know, so abolish ICE and defund police aren't jokes anymore. People are open to new visions. So I I would like to ask you to talk just a little bit, if you would, about what it would take, what needs to be built to make decarceration work. It's not just letting people out and nothing more. Well, it should be about letting people out because the system is way too extreme. There's a man down in Louisiana whose life prison term was upheld for stealing hedge clippers because he had four prior convictions and he was convicted under that state's habitual offender law. That man should not be in prison today. And letting him and other people convicted under that state's habitual offender law for minor property offenses should happen today without any requirement that those people have to go through additional hoops to prove that they aren't a threat to public safety. They shouldn't have been in prison for as long as they have been. There's another man in Mississippi whose prison term was upheld earlier this year before the pandemic even hit because he had a cell phone while he was booked into jail, which means that the police officers who booked him into jail failed at doing their job because they did not properly search him. And that man was sentenced to 12 years in a state lockup. And that prison term was also upheld by the state Supreme Court. That man should not be in prison. And all prisoners in Mississippi with minor property offenses whose prison terms were too extreme, should be released without question and without any additional hurdles that they have to go through because those are racist laws that are extreme and unduly burden and disappear Black residents from community life and from their families because of who lawmakers imagine to be 
convicted of those laws and the fact that they don't care about those individuals' lives, their futures, or their presence. That said, in order to lean into the conservative gaze that has to be explored for credible reforms to be adopted at the state and at the federal level, there are a range of considerations that advocates and lawmakers can be working on. One is that the sentencing in the United States is too is way too extreme and has racist roots, and there should be an intentional effort to revisit them and recalibrate them. There's a practice we encourage at a sentencing project called Racial Impact Statements, which look at the racial disparity of sentencing laws and their impact on prison systems. Lawmakers could adopt those policies within states, in states where they are already little off, states like New Jersey and Oregon. Lawmakers could expand what racial impact statements consider and could go through a deliberate process where they look at how the current sentencing practices result in racial disparate outcomes in state prison populations and intentionally go back to repair the harm. One would be recalibrating property offenses that can disappear people away for the rest of their life, like in Louisiana, or for more than a decade, like in Mississippi. And there are many states, if not all states, have similar extreme outcomes for property offenses ranging from robbery to burglary. Well, I certainly don't mean to be leaning into the conservative gaze. I really only mean to say that I think folks are or do something when they come out of prison beyond letting them out, which is the first thing and the ultimate thing. I think folks are do something, and I think communities are do something. That, so that could be a part of a reparations agenda and a racial justice agenda. There's a concept that has never been fully implemented called justice reinvestment, which was pioneered in the early 2000s. And the theory is that every year, millions of dollars are extracted from high incarceration communities by disappearing residents, and with them, resources, their potential labor and contribution to their communities, as well as public monies that are spent on their incarceration rather than on investments in those high incarceration communities by quality housing, enough funding, equitable funding of public education, and the funding of other public supports and social services two communities that have been divested from over the last 30 to 40 years following civil rights when, you know, many white folks decided they didn't want to live next to black people. So there's a lot that people are owed and there's a lot that communities are owed. And by decarceration and reprioritizing and shifting resources back into those communities through an intentional effort, through repertory justice and through some redress of the significant harm that entire communities have undergone during the era of mass incarceration would be one step to address what people are owed. We've been speaking with Nicole Porter, Director of Advocacy at The Sentencing Project. They're online at sentencingproject.org. Nicole Porter, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. You're welcome. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes and Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. <laughs>